0: And welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu, and today we are talking about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children with COVID-19. We have two special guests today, two experts in the field, our very own Eileen Claudius, who is the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice, and Mo Saidanijad both of whom have graciously given me some of their time to teach us about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and what we know about it so far. So without any further ado, here are Eileen and Mo.
1: Hi, I'm Eileen Claudius and I am an associate professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, which means that I actually work in the emergency department at Harbor UCLA.
2: Uh, Hi, I'm Mosahid Dineshad. I uh, just became professor of pediatrics and uh, emergency medicine at David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. And I also serve as the uh, director for the Institute for Health Services and Outcomes Research at the Lundquist Institute at Harvard UCLA, which is where I'm also a faculty in the emergency department.
0: Fantastic. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today. We're going to be talking about COVID-19 and children and specifically multi-system inflammatory syndrome and what we know or what we think we know so far uh, about the disease process and its treatment. So why don't we start with what exactly it is and maybe how long ago we recognized it as a real entity.
1: I think it was the end of April. The United Kingdom came out with a bulletin that they had seen a couple of kids, possibly kids who had had COVID or been exposed to COVID, who were demonstrating features that were similar to a combination of Kawasaki disease, at least at the time, usually atypical Kawasaki disease, and toxic shock syndrome. So they seemed to look a little bit like the Kawasaki disease shock syndrome. But obviously this came about during the COVID pandemic and some of these kids tested positive for COVID. Since then, we've obviously been seeing reports out of a number of different areas, Italy, France, and many different cities in the United States talking about this shock syndrome, multi-system inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID And now that we're having more robust testing with serologies as well, we're seeing that a greater and greater percentage of these children are testing positive in some fashion for COVID.
0: And have either of you seen anyone with the disease yet?
2: Yeah. So um, what's interesting is that given the size of California's population, especially Los Angeles County, and the overall number of COVID cases in adults, we're still not seeing a lot of children that are affected by COVID. Um, And in terms of regionally in, in Southern California, we Up to now, we probably have seen less than 10 total, which is very different from the clusters that we were seeing in New York City, for example, in Washington, D.C., and in Detroit, Michigan, where I did my fellowship and my old fellowship place. In a three-week period, they admitted 33 kids to the PICU with this. Wow. So we are, for some reason, it seems very clustered and these clusters seem to all have different features in different cities, which is really interesting. Hmm. Um, just like the England cohort is different from the Italy cohort, the New York cohort is different from the Michigan cohort, but we have not seen it yet in California. We don't know if it's because of the fact that we started the lockdown sooner or you know we did something that prevents its spread, or is it just that we haven't seen it yet? We do know that, for example, in Michigan, the peak of MISC was somewhere around mid-May. Um, and we know that in New York, it was the first week of May. So they're both post-peak at this point, but we haven't even started. So it's interesting to see if we're going to even
1: get that over here or not. Just to take a step back and provide some context for this, there's a number of different definitions probably the most widely utilized definition is from the cdc and that's going to be somebody who's less than 21 with a fever some lab evidence of inflammation and evidence of clinically severe illness requiring hospitalization in two or more organ systems so basically you have to be a kid you have to be a half a fever you have to have lab inflammation and you have to have more than two organ systems involved in a pretty major way for no other clear reason and you have to have some relationship with covid whether that's a clear exposure positive serologies or a positive pcr the thing that's a little bit scary about this is the fever definition can be a subjective fever for 24 hours or more or any temperature above 38 or 38 or above for 24 hours or more So what is this really looking like? Well, people are reporting, like Mo said, small case series. Hey, we saw 33, we saw 40, we saw 22. And things that seem to be coming up pretty frequently are that there are a lot of GI symptoms, more than we're seeing in adults with COVID, more than we're seeing in adults with severe disease from COVID. So there seems to be a range of somewhere between about 60 and 100% of cases demonstrating GI symptoms, abdominal pain, tenderness, diarrhea, vomiting. A lot of kids are going to have some type of a rash, and they can be different rashes, probably about 70%. Not very many kids are going to have respiratory symptoms, somewhere between a third and two thirds. And this may be because a lot of kids are asymptomatic for the respiratory symptoms in COVID. And some of it may be because, as Mo said, it's often a delayed thing. It doesn't typically happen the day or the week that you get infected with COVID, it often happens a little bit after that. And a lot of kids are going to have cardiac dysfunction. So about half are in shock in many case series. Many will have an acute myocarditis. One case series reported a third of kids with pretty substantial left ventricular dysfunction. And this myocarditis seems to set in within a week of the fever and GI symptoms.
0: Is the shock that is seen specifically related to cardiogenic shock, or could it be non-cardiogenic in origin and still qualify in this kind of syndrome?
2: So um, based on the differences in the cohorts that we've seen in between England and New York and Michigan, there are really uh, not one way that the shock presents. For example, the New York group were more likely presenting what appears to be a warm shock that responds really well to norepinephrine. But the cohort in Michigan did not respond very well to norepinephrine and they had to switch their strategy to go with epinephrine because they presented more like in cold shock. So we are seeing a combination of what appears to be distributive shock and cardiogenic shock. And there isn't really a way to predict upfront which one of these we are getting. One other thing I was going to say about uh, the fever is that New York, for example, even though the definition says at least 24 hours of fever, the New York cases that ended up being MISC on average had four days of fever. The Michigan cohort ha- on average had three days of fever. So at least in New York, they started using four days as part of their internal case definition. I know that was from Cohen Children's, for example, that had the biggest. Uh, 55 or so patients that are confirmed uh, to be misc, And uh, it was interesting because s- uh, 73% of their patients were actually COVID negative. But the majority of them, almost all of them, were antibody positive. And we also know that initially when first COVID came around, we were very happy saying, you know, good news is that we're not really getting this a lot in kids. We, we didn't know initially whether kids don't get it. Or the kids get it and have such a mild illness and they resolve, therefore, we never see them. But when the MISC started coming around, a couple of things became very clear. Number one is that the peak incident of COVID was followed by about three to six weeks with this MISC, which means that MISC was delayed. Um, and that would potentially be explained by the fact that uh, when you first get infected by the virus, there's the viremic phase, there's a viral phase where the virus is replicating as internalized in the body and it's replicating. The body develops some kind of a mild inflammatory response by using a first version of their um, cytokines, which we call the type one cytokines or the uh, interferon alpha, interferon beta. And most of the times that reaction is pretty mild and the body overcomes the virus, viral infection is resolved, no issues. But in some cases, the body doesn't stop there. It perceives more viral threat. And then it moves on to a second phase, the antibody phase, where it starts now throwing the second levels of cytokines at you. And those are the interferon gammas and TNF alphas and a bunch of other uh, inflammatory mediated like that, which are a little bit more out of control. They not only attack the virus, but they also start attacking the body's own structures. and. We think that the reason you have, for example, a heart problem or a liver problem or a kidney problem is where the virus has been attacking the system from where it's been internalized. The virus actually uses an enzyme called ACE2 or angiotensin converting enzyme two whose job is to convert angiotensin-2 to angiotensin-1-dise-7. This is basic pathophysiology, a little boring, I think. But uh, what happens is when uh, that enzyme ACE is a transmembrane protein and its receptor is a perfect site for SARS-CoV-2 to bind with really high affinity, and that causes to internalize the ACE2, and as a result, it downregulates ACE2. So now you don't have a lot of conversion from angiotensin-2 to angiotensin-1-dise-7 one die 7 would have been a counter-regulatory to angiotensin-2, uh, responsible for release of vasodilatory stuff and kind of calm down the angiotensin-2 effect, which is vasoconstriction, pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic. So now angiotensin-2 is king because it doesn't have any opposing force. So as a result of that, wherever the ACE2 has greater expression is where you're getting this problem. And we believe in kids the cardiac tissue, the skin, the liver, the kidney have more expression than the lungs do, unlike adults. And it is, in fact, the antibody phase, which is delayed by a few weeks, is responsible for MISC. That's why we didn't see these early. That's why we, st- we had to wait till April to start seeing the cases that have reached that level of response. And we would still say this is an extremely rare thing. We still don't believe there's a lot of kids out there with this. It's out there, but it's still um, accounts for a small, small proportion of all children, um, that are affected by, um, mis
1: And like most saying, I mean, there's a lot of cytokine, a lot of inflammatory response. We see this in the labs, the CRPs are sky high, D-dimers are sky high. The ferritin is sky high, like you would see in macrophage activation syndrome. And so I guess the short answer to your question is we're seeing this cytokine storm. We're also seeing cardiac dysfunction, and they're probably going to both to some degree be components, and whether or not you're seeing this as more of a cardiogenic cold shock or more of a septic warm shock is really going to kind of depend on which is the predominant component in that child, but either way, both are probably going on.
0: So a couple of follow-up questions for that. Now, you mentioned in New York, they had the four days of fever, Michigan, three days of fever. That's from symptom onset or from recognition, or are they just talking about four days of fever collectively before they actually entertain the diagnosis?
2: Uh, some of it was, re- was retroactive. When they uh, looked at this uh, prevalence of this Kawasaki-like syndrome and majority of them weren't a complete kawasaki completely clear they work more consistent with incomplete Kawasaki. We already know about incomplete Kawasaki, and we already have lab diagnoses for that. Uh, so when we do those testing and they come back positive, like the inflammatory markers, like the C-reactive protein, for example, then you start, and then you have, the, you have the four days, five days of fever, and you have the rash. You have basically, potentially, you have lymphadenopathy. You have cracked lips. You have peeling fingers, all of those things. You have one or two of them, but not all of them. Then you say, okay, I have Kawasaki, and then you start saying, well, look, we've had a lot of Kawasaki this last couple of days or a couple of weeks. So let's look at the, see if we can build a case definition for them, because it almost sounds like an outbreak of Kawasaki. And Kawasaki, by the way, we have learned about it, doesn't lend itself to be an outbreak. So the question became, hey, during this COVID um, Maybe there is something that the COVID is doing to the body that causes the inflammatory effect. And there were studies coming out of China way early, like in February, that they talked about the differences between kids and adults in their lymphocyte population, in their natural killer population, in their innate immunity, their um, cross-reactivity from all the colds that the kids get, for example. Maybe that's affecting. So we knew there's something going on. But what was interesting was that the COVID test for a great number of these patients was negative and they couldn't figure out what was going on but one day started antibody testing when that became available and in michigan they had it early and they were test they are they were testing way like early or early may they were testing for antibody uh they found out that these these kids were antibody positive but without a positive antigen uh, PCR for, for SARS-CoV-2. And this is what this, the concept of, hey, maybe they're out of the viral phase. So the virus is not replicating so much anymore and perhaps even undetectable anymore. So the PCR is negative. However, the body has already started its inflammatory and it can't be stopped. It's already in phase two. And the antibody positivity tells you that at some point this person was Uh, possibly COVID. And uh, just like Eileen mentioned, uh, what they described this as was multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children temporally associated with SARS-CoV-2. And not temporary as in temporary, but temporally, meaning time-wise associated with. And so they went back and found that there's a couple of them who are antibody negative in the Michigan cohort. And there was one of them in the DC cohort that was negative for the antibody. But then they found out that they had a contact with a close relative who was a known positive, a diagnosed positive. So that's why they said, well, maybe we don't know for sure where we are with this, but there's some association that's temporal it is after the infection. But as as long as you're either exposed or you have antigen positivity or antibody positivity, this is part of the same entity. That's why they call it temporally associated. And as Eileen mentioned, this is a name that might change. So that's what they were saying at some point, but it's really, really interesting because um, all of this really, so far we're only explaining it through pathophysiology of, of how this may work and every kind of uh, treatment that we're thinking about is also directed against the things that the body is doing that's out of control.
0: Before we get into treatment, one more question about presentation. So with the cluster of symptoms that's been defined so far, is clinical shock a requirement to make the diagnosis or could you have multiple other symptoms associated with it having not yet developed shock and still say okay this is MISC on its on its way?
1: Clinical shock is really tough in kids because remember, hypotension, which is so important in adults, doesn't seem to be an early feature in kids. By the time a child is hypotensive, I always tell the residents, and I presume Mo does as well, you probably have five minutes before that kid dies. Hypotension is such a late finding. And so when we're looking for shock in kids, we're really looking at things like tachycardia, capillary refill. And when you've got a lot of cytokines out there and you have a warm shock picture, capillary refill can be flash. You might not even have delayed capillary refill. So first and foremost, I would say that shock is a hard diagnosis in kids, even by the most experienced clinician. And this is such an odd and unique and new disease that our ability to diagnose shock in this without a lot of corroborative evidence is going to be somewhat thwarted. But no, you don't necessarily have to have shock. In some case series, say, you know, about half of kids come into this with shock, but you do have to have clinically severe illness in two or more systems. Now, if you're, you often have elevated liver enzymes and an elevated creatinine. In my mind, if you come in looking horrible and you have elevated liver enzymes and elevated creatinine, is that shock? I'm going to kind of treat it as that but do they technically have to have clear parameters? Do they have to have an elevated lactate? Do they have to have delayed capillary refill? Do they have to have hypotension? No.
2: Yeah, the the other thing I was gonna add to that is that uh, they were from the New York cohort, which was the most defined, and the state of New York was clearly the most affected by this. It seems like there were three types of possibilities Uh, when the body starts acting the way it does. Either you get a full Kawasaki-looking picture without shock, just like regular Kawasaki, or you get your incomplete Kawasaki with possibly a little element of shock. And then there's a third group that actually has the more cardiac uh, uh, problem, which ends up being in shock. And this is through the combination of vasoconstriction and prothrombotic state. So it's almost like gives you like an elderly person who's having a heart attack kind of a scenario. And that occurs at different rates with these different cohorts. The England cohort had probably about 20%. The New York cohort was about 50 or so percent. And that was very similar to the Italy cohort. The Michigan one had also the shock, but it almost looked like their shock was a septic shock uh, combination with a, but it was distributive, but it, it was also a combination with some cardiogenic, but overall, they wouldn't know what it was until it started not responding to norepinephrine, because even though you look like you have cap refill, you couldn't tell if it's flash or normal, but then your blood pressure was low, and you threw norepinephrine at it because that's what you do. They threw dopamine at it and see what happens, and they found out that in that cohort, um, epinephrine worked out a little bit better, so uh, I just want to agree with Eileen. This is just so new, and there's so many different variations of it. Anything we say is our best guess about that. This is this is not clearly defined yet, and we're going to learn more. Hopefully not. Hopefully a case it will end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One can hope. <laughs> The, uh, the clinical presentation, though, sounds like the, the universal symptom is an ill-appearing child. So none of these children are well-appearing with mild symptoms encompassing multiple systems. The, like the baseline definition seems to be a very ill or toxic-appearing child within multi-system involvement.
1: I think that's fair to say from the case series that have been published But at least two of the series that I've read and Mo may have read more did mention prior visits in their cohort. And in one, it was about 27% had had a prior visit and were diagnosed with acute gastroenteritis and sent home. And in another, about 60% had had a prior visit and were discharged home. So just like many things, when you see a kid with meningococcemia, if you see them four hours into the onset of meningococcemia, they're going to look just like any other kid with a fever. Whereas if you see them 24 hours, they look like that horrible kid with purpura that you see on the internet. And so I am going to presume that this is very similar since the myocarditis can happen kind of within that first week, maybe a couple days, maybe at the end of the week. That's obviously going to be one factor in how the kid looks, obviously how their inflammatory markers are going, their cytokines are going, that's going to be another factor. But it seems pretty clear that a number of these kids were seen at least one time prior and looked good enough that a reasonable provider felt comfortable sending them home.
2: Yeah. The other thing about that is, uh, again, when you look at the Michigan, uh, cohort specifically, they work backwards, right? They looked at the patients after they've had the outcome and they wanted to see if there's anything they could have predicted up front. They found out that these kids they deteriorate pretty quickly. So a lot of times you have an opportunity to start intervention before they deteriorate. So they were looking at what is the best way we can screen them. And we might talk about this, but, um, uh, they use certain criteria to predict who is going to be at risk and they start whatever management that they would normally do for a Kawasaki-like um, illness. As soon as they were meeting that four days of fever and one of those five things, and uh, they started a list of things that they were going to test. And if somebody tested worrisome on that testing, despite looking fantastic, they would admit them with the understanding that in a couple of days they're going to crash. So. They would not always necessarily start with a crashing kit. Their goal was to stop the crashing kit. So I think anything that we are heard hearing about these, including the ASAP webinar we did or the webinar that the CDC did, was trying to come up with some kind of predictive factors that would allow you to capture them early and be slightly preventative rather than um, trying to work with somebody who's already crashing. As um, Eileen was saying, when you are hypotensive and your cap refill is bad and you only have five minutes, that's not the best time to do miracles. It is best to kind of predict this, have them in the ICU, start some intervention to prevent all of this from happening and then have you know critical care support when it happens. So we're trying to stay ahead of this game.
0: That's a great transition, actually, to talk about those kinds of screening criteria. So you know, assuming we are seeing someone in the emergency department with possibly a history of exposure or having had COVID who now comes in with symptoms that are not typical of upper respiratory infection, they might be in clinical shock, or, or they might be on the way there and we're a little worried about them, what kinds of screening criteria did they come up with from, from New York or Michigan or those cohorts?
2: The best screening criteria that I see right now online is the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has a really amazing pathway. It actually goes through all the different uh, with shock, without shock. But for New York, um, what they basically did, they looked at the CDC criteria and what they said was that a patient who's had four days of fever, which is at least 38 degrees, and has at least have had one of the symptoms of GI symptoms, which most often was only abdominal pain, it could even be just diarrhea, could be just vomiting, but abdominal pain was the most common. Or if they had a rash, or if they had conjunctivitis, or they had any kind of oral mucosal change, cough, or they had headache. If they meet those, then they do a inflammatory marker screening. And for them, what they screened was, they screened for CRP, they screen for ferritin, and they screen for troponin and pro-BNP. That's the brain naturallytic peptide. A lot of places just do BNP, but these guys did pro-BNP. So they are basically looking for overall inflammation and any kind of potential cardiac injury. And they use that to try to predict if the patient falls into the cl- classical Kawasaki, incomplete Kawasaki, or the cardiogenic or distributive shock type. And that's the one that uh, New York case definition used, which is pretty similar to what Children's Hospital Philadelphia website has. And it's pretty similar to what uh, they did in D.C. as well as Michigan. So there's a first layer of screening and then you have to do a second layer of screening, which is then you you basically look for echocardiogram and things like that. If you kind of found your numbers to be off.
0: And. In the transition then from having a symptomatic child, possibly screening positive, now I'm worried about this child, and we're migrating into the inpatient realm, what is there in the way of treatment, or is it all just symptomatic support?
1: A lot of these kids are being started off with IVIG based on our experience with Kawasaki. One of the things that is different, though, from Kawasaki, which is sort of Making us think this isn't just classic Kawasaki is that a lot of kids are not responding fully to the IVIG treatment. In Kawasaki disease, most kids do respond well, and some of these kids are not. So, in addition, kids who aren't responding great to the IVIG may be getting pulse steroids. And there's some experience as well with the different cytokine blockers. So, infliximab, which is a TNF blocker and which is an IL-1 inhibitor. Some centers have been using those with relative success. Someone just published a great case report of a kid who unfortunately had Crohn's disease, which was flaring and COVID. And even though the COVID wasn't that bad, they got a whole bunch of infliximab for the Crohn's disease and the COVID got better. And so that's something that may help as well with just kind of that outpouring of cytokines. And obviously, Remdesivir is somewhat controversial, but in kids that are testing positive for PCR, so they have an active infection with COVID, some centers are adding that as well.
2: Yeah, for for MISC, um, both the England cohort and the Italy cohort, as well as the, all of the American sites, they started them on IVIG pretty much one hundred percent of the times. And they also started them mostly on aspirin. 88% of everybody in that dose cohorts on average got aspirin. When it came to steroids, there was a little bit of a variation. Uh, the Michigan ones that I kind of am the most familiar with, that's where I, where I trained my whole place, they had um, looked at using of steroids in a specific cases where the patient, for example, initially wasn't getting better. So they added the dose of steroid after two full days in the PICU. So steroid was not a on start, but it was the second line for the cohort of patients who weren't getting better. On the New York group, they found act- the IVIG actually works okay for the New York cohort. They only needed to do a second dose of IVIG in 30% of the cases. And they had recovery of all of their patients. Nobody ended up you know, needing to uh, stay prolonged in the PICU more than four or five days. And they had zero deaths. And this included uh, every one of the patients in all of the New York hospitals, not just the Cohens, the ones that we get the data from. So we know for sure, everybody is being treated Kawasaki-like with IVIG and the majority of them getting aspirin. We also know that a selective sicker kids after two days will be added the steroids to. These other medications that Eileen talked about, it depends on how comfortable the center is and how much experience they had. But like I was telling you before from the pathophysiology, it makes sense, right, that you wanna block IL-1. That's the second level of immune response. It's the one that's out of control, the one that you know attacks your own body. Same with IL-6, same thing with TNF-alpha. So theoretically, at least, all of these things should work. What we don't know in kids, they're not really used as much in kids who are otherwise well. So we don't really know if they're gonna have long lasting side effects or any problems.
0: I've always wondered what the what the actual physiology of giving IVIG even in Kawasaki syndrome was. I, I know that it works, but I'm still not 100% clear in my mind why it why it's beneficial.
1: I think one of the things that's most unfortunate about this is it's something that we don't understand very well that's similar to another illness that we don't understand very well. But if you do presume that this is similar to other types of myocarditis, where there's some type of autoimmune phenomenon, some antibody that's attacking the myocytes, it does make sense that perhaps the IVIG would help. That certainly has been shown to help in Kawasaki disease. It doesn't necessarily help in a lot of other types of myocarditis, but we're assuming that there's some immune-related phenomenon where the antibodies that are involved in this are causing a lot of these problems, and so possibly blocking the antibodies might be helpful.
2: Mo? Yeah, so I, I thought similarly. I, I believe that part of the problem is that the immune response here is not controlled. It's not attacking just a virus, it's attacking its own organ system. So what we're doing is basically trying to calm it down, anti it a little bit, get it to reset, so it start getting focused, for lack of a better term. And uh, we know anecdotally that it's working, and uh, in some cases, it doesn't work. And if it was that straightforward, it should work equally every single time, and it doesn't. So we have some theory and some speculations about why it works. Uh, so I'm I'm guessing, if I were to have to think of one possible explanation to stick with, I'm going with the fact that because the immune response in Kawasaki and this MISC is a little bit out of control and unregulated, you want to calm it down a little bit and hope that it picks up in a regulated fashion.
0: Good. Thank
2: you. It's kind of like when you give caffeine to somebody who's ADHD, you're trying to calm it down and restart it, right? So that's what I'm thinking.
0: I like that. Now the the complications that we see from this disease process in these small limited number of cohorts, are they similar to the complications we see in Kawasaki disease?
2: Yeah, so I would say we don't have long-term data, so we don't know what still is yet to come, uh, but we do know from what we have seen so far that they really have a similar worst case scenario of three to four days in a PICU needing to be on pressers, getting IVIG, getting steroids, and all of the ones we've seen so far have recovered. Now, whether five months from now they'll come back with some latent effect or a second wave, we don't just we just don't know that.
1: There are some centers reporting coronary artery thickening. So we are seeing a lot of overlap in some of the long term effects.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, one study actually said that 27% of all of their patients had a little bit of a coronary artery change, but they feel that if they followed it over time, that it's going to disappear because some of them already started thickening and they resolved by the time they were discharged. So, that, that, whether that's gonna be continuing or not, really in my opinion, depends on how much time we have to follow them forward. I, I have a feeling that this may not be the end of it. We might have people come back six months from now, a year from now with some kooky abnormality that we have to wonder if it's related to this. That's um yeah, my my opinion is we just don't have longitudinal data to be able to say about complications.
1: And we don't have the numbers either. Remember the incidence of coronary artery aneurysms in untreated Kawasaki disease is rather high, but with treatment, it's really quite low. And we not only don't have enough of these cases, but also don't have a long enough follow-up time to see if this is going to give us the same number of patients as Kawasaki disease, because that number with treatment, which most of these kids are getting treatment with IVIG, is rather low.
0: Any idea, theories, right? purely theoretical, why the larger number of cases in, say, New York City versus the West Coast?
1: You know, Mo brought up earlier that we're seeing this not insubstantially behind the peak. So the thought is that this probably occurs about three to six weeks, like he said, after the initial illness and the fact that a lot of these kids are positive on serologies but no longer on PCR attests to that so I think that's part of it is that New York was hit first so we're going to see the three to six week complications first from New York and they will probably move across the country as that duration passes but also don't forget how many cases were in New York I mean it is A very densely populated area where people take a lot of public transportation and it's highly populated as well. So when you kind of look at the overall numbers of COVID cases, not just kids, but in general, about 10%, just a little bit over 10% were right in New York City and a little bit under 20% were in New York State. So they have a lot of the COVID cases in that particular area. Yeah, and you know, also
2: they once they pass their peaks. Currently, there's very little going on with MISC in New York. And remember, in New York, there was a period of about a one or two weeks before they did the lockdown that a whole bunch of people were were basically exposed, and a week after that, a whole bunch of people were sick. The same thing I remember in Detroit, where they were not shutting the city down. People were gathering and there was a lot of conversation about this is going to come back and bite you. And it did. You end up with a huge spike in cases over a short period of time. And if you look at that three to six weeks out, that's that accounts for 33 PICU admissions in three weeks at the Children's Hospital in Michigan. And after that, they're hardly seeing any new patients because now it's what is the current rate of covid infection in each of these places so i do believe i agree with eileen i think it has to do with and i think honestly it has to do with the lockdown and how soon they did it and how much people were out there and how close they were because of the public transportation and because of the size of manhattan so i don't think it's a surprise but also this is still extremely rare if you think of the n- number of people who live in Los Angeles County or the number of people that live in New York City, the number of pediatric patients affected, it is still a small proportion of them who are even COVID positive. And of those, a very small proportion of the patients go on to have this add a whack second phase of immune response and, you know, going into a cytokine storm. So, I mean, there are clusters, but the clusters, I think, have a lot to do with the baseline number of people infected at the time the cluster started. So I, I, I don't think somehow the population of LA is different than population of New York in terms of their demographics or their ability to catch. Because we also know of those studies that if you really try hard to find out which kid would be susceptible to this, there was a small, small hint of association between kids who had asthma. Wasn't even anything exciting. There was a small small association with people who had congenital heart and if you want to theoretically say well if this is an immune system that's acting amok what well, if i'm immune compromised shouldn't that be protective because my immune system is not really able to do all of that But there's no evidence either way for that either so right now we don't know if there's any kind of predisposing or vulnerability that you can just screen the population and keep those kids from school for example there is no such thing that we have at the moment as that i know of
1: it does also seem that this is a little bit overrepresented in black children in the uk a disproportionate number of the kids that were reported with the multi-system inflammatory syndrome were of afro-caribbean descent in the New York cohort, the number of African American children with MISC definitely exceeds the number of African American children proportionally in New York. So I think the fact that it is an ethnically diverse city is also contributing to it to some degree.
2: Yeah, I mean, even in New York. The, the, even though that's that's true, in New York, the majority of their patients who were MISC end up being Hispanic. Uh, True, I agree with Eileen in the fact that proportionally representation-wise, but a lot of patients who are not African-American were also, I think Hispanics were also overrepresented in in number of MISC cases. So I hope we're going to learn a lot more. Uh, The Michigan um, cohort was definitely more proportionally African-American because Detroit is largely African-American. But, you know, again, their proportion was a little bit over what would have been on average. And in Washington, DC, it was right on par because a lot of the patients came from Ward 8, which is Southeast DC, which has a lot more uh, density of population of African Americans versus the Northwest DC. So there might be something to it, and uh, I think we're going to learn more about it. But again, remember, the numbers are so small. We make generalizations on a very small numbers, and it's not really completely accurate because it's such a rare event still.
0: One last question. Has the disease process changed your practice for testing children for COVID 19 or using the antibody testing?
1: I think it has. Certainly at the beginning of the covid outbreak it was great to be in the pcd i'm trained in both adult emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine and i go back and forth and i certainly remember for the first few weeks of this the days i was in the pcd i was like phew i don't have to worry no one's going to get intubated no one's going to die on me i don't have to worry that everybody has covid because we knew that it was pretty minor from a respiratory standpoint In kids and often asymptomatic and so we just weren't even seeing a lot of the kids that were probably infected with it at all Because they had no symptoms to come in with now I'm obviously a little bit more cautious with kids who have a fever and Certainly sending a lot of those inflammatory markers that mo talked about the CRP the troponin the ferritin the d-dimer the b-type natriuretic peptide in kids who do have a fever both in order to figure out how much additional workup I need to do with the fever because maybe it's COVID and they don't need a lumbar puncture because quite frankly, a lot of kids are now under immunized because they haven't been seeing their pediatrician because of COVID, the little ones. And also, you know, just out of a concern that this may be a presentation of that. What I'm truly worried about because our curve right now in California is pretty flat is what we are going to do when real gastroenteritis season sets in, and we have all of these kids with this viral rashes, all of these kids with abdominal symptoms, and they've had a fever for a couple of days, it's gonna be really tough.
2: Yeah, we're also really opening up every city and people are gonna start being out as well. And uh, there is really still a lot left to be seen. Um, I also agree with um, Eileen in terms of my clinical practice Um, I also am a little bit more aware of possible uh, odd presentations of this. So like I have a six day of fever, a kid who looks really, really great. I would have just said, okay, well, it's six days of fever is more than five days, but it's still within the standard. And the kid is old enough not to automatically require a urinalysis or a blood because of the prevalence of bacteremia, prevalence of UTI in this age group. But now I'm thinking there's COVID going on. Uh, On average, most kids don't end up being sick for six days, especially on day six after temperature is still 40. I I really start freaking out in a way that I want to make sure I avoid one of these that's going to end up becoming MISC. So I actually last night ordered a whole bunch of these tests exactly like I said. I was debating on a BNP on a kid because I never sent those. But then you know this is part of our markers for cardiac um, function so we're sending that we're sending the dimer troponins, crp and ferritin uh, interestingly is also associated one thing i i didn't get to mention the difference between misc and kawasaki in labs is the thrombocytopenia that we're seeing in misc typically with kawasaki we see thrombocytosis because as an acute phase reactant uh, platelet count goes up and usually day five and on, like older later on, but here we're seeing thrombocytopenia with lymphopenia and uh, granulocytosis. So when we are doing a CBC, I am not just looking for white count now. I'm looking for white count, I'm looking for low uh, platelets, and I'm looking for low lymphocyte proportion. And those are all triggers for me. I never used to think that detailed about my white, you know, my uh, CBC. Oh, also hemoglobin because anemia is another feature.
1: And the other area that I think it's affected the fever workup is usually when a 10-year-old comes in with a fever, unless they are like horribly, horribly ill appearing, or they have some substantial medical history like cancer on chemo, we're kind of like a fever in a 10-year-old. Why'd you even bring your 10-year-old in? They never have anything bad with a fever. Please just go home. Whereas we realize that this seems to be hitting kids at an older age than we typically see with Kawasaki. Of course, Kawasaki can strike any age, but usually the kids are a little bit younger, whereas the average age for this in the studies is typically reported at seven years, 10 years. Kids who we typically feel very comfortable and confident with a fever, that as long as their exam is normal and they look basically okay, we don't really have to do any workup that's a group that we're doing a much more robust workup than we might have otherwise.
0: The utility of testing specifically for COVID, uh, you know, PCR testing or antibody testing, seems like it may not actually be as helpful if this disease process can occur weeks later after the infection. Uh, You know, perhaps knowledge that they have antibodies might play some role, but not necessarily clinically.
2: Yeah, so the the antibody testing is not widely available, so some places aren't doing it. Uh, Everybody is doing PCR, and uh, like we said before, because probably on the average 20% of them are going to be COVID positive, so it's not as helpful. But if it's positive, it is yet another piece of information that you may want to use, because that might either be that the viral shedding is still enough to be detected by PCR, or the patient maybe developed this earlier than our average three to six weeks that we want. Sometimes everybody doesn't read the textbook, they start presenting earlier. So I will still test it and I wish I had antibody testing that's rapid and available to me and accurate. I personally feel like we're not there yet with our wide adoption of highly accurate and dependable and rapid turnaround antibody tests to use for this purpose.
1: I think it's good to send off the antibody test if you have it, particularly if you're going to give the kid IVIG because the IVIG might make the antibody test a little bit less reliable. That having been said, I agree with Mo, very few of us are going to have access to that antibody test while the kid's in the emergency department. So it's going to be useful at some point during the hospital stay. The vast, vast majority of these kids are positive for one of the two but it's not gonna necessarily help us at this stage with our decision-making in the ED. Well,
0: that's it everyone for this episode of Amplify. Before we sign off, I wanna remind you that ebmedicine.net hosts two issues related to COVID-19, one specific to adults and one specific to children. They're both free and open to the general public and contain all of the most up-to-date information that we know regarding COVID-19 in both of those populations. Both issues are an amazing resource that is continuously updated with the latest information and breakthroughs and both are available to you at no cost. While you're at the website, check out all of the other resources available to you, CME credits, issues on every single topic you could think of related to emergency medicine. It's an outstanding library. And as always, don't forget, we welcome your feedback. If there's any information you want to pass along, questions you want to ask, or just general comments you want to send to me, feel free to dial the number in the show notes and leave a voicemail or write me at amplify at ebmedicine.net. Until next time, stay safe.